Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Making an album is a straightforward thing, right? You write some songs, you go into a studio, and a few months later, something gets released. And 99% of the time, that's exactly what happens. But wait, you're thinking, 99% of the time? What about the other 1%? Well, those are the times when someone goes into a studio, starts working on an album, and then, for whatever reason, nothing gets released. Time and money and energy is poured into a project, and out the other end comes nothing. There are a surprising number of lost albums out there, records that were made, or at least partially made, that apparently will never, ever see the light of day. And they involve some pretty big names. These are the lost albums of alt-rock. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Before we get started, this is Rivers Cuomo of Weezer with a track entitled Super Friend. And don't worry, I'll explain where it comes from. That's Rivers Cuomo working by himself on a collection of demos called Alone, the Home Recordings. That song is Super Friend, and it's actually from a Weezer album that was never released. Hold that thought, because we'll come back to it. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and I'm going to do my best James Cameron here and dive into the depths to find the greatest album shipwrecks in the history of alt-rock. These are the albums that were started, but never finished. Or if they were finished, they were never released. They languish somewhere, hidden away like some ugly, freakish secret that no one is ever supposed to hear about. But we do hear about them. Some of them, anyway but we rarely ever get to just hear them. They become the stuff of myths. Before we go any further, we should look at the reasons why an album never gets released. First of all, maybe the project just isn't working. No matter what anybody tries, it just sucks. Maybe it's the wrong producers. Maybe there's a crisis within the band that upsets the delicate creative balance. Uh, Whatever. Just best walk away and write it off as a bad experience. Reason number two. The project just runs out of time, money, or both. Given more of either, something might have been salvaged, but because nothing had worked up to a certain point, it was better just to write it all off as a bad investment. Reason number three. An album gets finished and delivered to the record label, as contracted, but then the label rejects it. Too weird. Too tough to market. No hit singles. Or maybe there was some kind of executive shakeup, and the person who signed the band is no longer with the label. Nobody wants anything to do with that guy, Sunnings, because, well, he stinks of failure. And this often leads to those bands being dropped from the label, even though they may have just delivered a decent record. Whatever the cause for rejection, the band is basically paid to go away. And the master tapes, as per the contract, have to stay with the label and rot in a vault somewhere until somebody buys it from them. Number five, which is similar to reason number four, contractual issues. 
Sometimes there will be an ugly legal dispute with the band or within the band. Who owns the music? A royalty dispute, an angry music publisher, an outside claim of some sort. The completed album never sees the light of day because it's just too complicated and just too expensive to sort things out. And finally, reason number six. The album just disappears. It's erased. It's stolen or something. One day it was there and the next day it's gone without a trace. And I know that seems completely ridiculous, but it does happen. All those albums on this list have not been officially released for one of those six reasons. And notice that I said officially released. Of course, there have been leaks. Music that was supposed to be locked up forever somehow got into the wild. Maybe it was the band. Maybe it was the label. Maybe it was someone at the recording studio. But one thing is for sure, you won't find these albums at any record store. And I want to warn you about something right up front. This is going to be a bit weird because we can tell the stories, but in the vast majority of cases, I can't play anything from these albums that I'm talking about. That's because they don't exist. Not officially, anyway. So let's go through this list of disappeared alt-rock albums in chronological order. And I promise that we will come back to that Lost Weezer album in just a bit. We'll start in 1990 with Bad Radio. If you're a Pearl Jam fan, you've heard of these guys. It's Eddie Vedder's funked-up rock band that existed between 1986 and 1990. Eddie was the singer for the last two years of the group's existence. There was a four-song cassette released in 1989. That hinted of more to come. And there were more songs. It's just that in February of 1990, Eddie quit to take up an offer from this unnamed band in Seattle that he thought would be a better bet. Bad Radio continued for a while, but eventually disintegrated. Meanwhile, the Pearl Jam fan community has kept Bad Radio alive by circulating bootlegs of Bad Radio stuff. I can play this for you. Check out this example. It's called I'm Alive. I'm Alive! Eddie Vedder, in the days before Pearl Jam, that's Bad Radio, his San Diego band, and I'm Alive. They had demos recorded and were ready to release an album, but it was never to be because Eddie moved up the coast to a gig that turned out to be a little bit more lucrative. When Dave Grohl was in Nirvana, no one really paid him that much attention. Kurt was the focus. Dave was just a long-haired, heavy-hitting dude in the back who kept time for Kurt's songs. But unbeknownst to everyone, Dave had ambition. He wanted to be more than just a timekeeper. He had his own songs. Dave recorded some demos as far back as 1990, even before he was with Nirvana. And then in the summer of 1991, he released a 10-song cassette-only album under the name Late. He called the album Pocket Watch. Now, supply was very limited, and Dave was getting busier with Nirvana, so he really didn't have much time to devote to his own stuff. So he gave the cassette to a buddy named Jenny Toomey. Jenny ran a no-budget label called Simple Machines, and using volunteers and a bunch of cassette decks, she ran off as many dubs of Pocket Watch as she could until the master cassettes wore out. When bootlegs started appearing from places like Italy, she begged Dave to allow her to release the album on vinyl or on CD, but Dave said, no, 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 I, I would just rather keep it as a cassette thing. Over the years, though, songs from late have shown up. In addition to the bootlegs, tracks have appeared on 7-inch compilations, some were re-recorded and renamed for Foo Fighters releases, and one, and only one, was recorded with Nirvana. 
If you have the CD single for Heart-Shaped Box or the Nirvana box set with the lights out, you may know of a song called Marigold. That is the only Dave Grohl song to ever make the Nirvana canon. He sings and he plays most of the instruments. Kurt is not even on the track. And this is actually a late song, originally from the Pocket Watch cassette, except that in its previous life, the title was Color Pictures of a Marigold. And it was recorded just before Christmas of 1990, about 10 months before Dave joined Nirvana. Let's have a listen to that original, shall we? Dave Grohl and his pre-Foo Fighters, pre-Nirvana band called Late. There was an album called Pocket Watch, but because Nirvana took off, Dave moved on and it never received a proper release. So, another lost album. I don't have any music to play for this next lost record because it was apparently stolen. In 1993, Ian McCulloch was still estranged from Echo and the Bunnymen, and he was looking to get back into the game. At the same time, ex-Smiths guitarist Johnny Marr wanted to do something new. They wrote at least an album's worth of material together, and the British music press went nuts speculating over the possibilities. Then, Echo guitarist Will Sargent was brought in to help. That got them even more excited. Work continued, and an album was finished. One British newspaper set up a hotline where you could phone in and listen to a song over the phone. But nothing was ever released. According to legend, the master tapes were sent to the record company after everything had been completed. But somewhere along the line, they were stolen from the courier truck in a holdup. There were no backups, and the album was lost. Well, not entirely. Two songs were re-recorded for a band called Electrofiction, which featured Ian and Will. And another ended up as a World Cup theme song with vocals from the Spice Girls. Yes. But was that album really stolen? It somehow seems unlikely. The theory is that Ian and Johnny made up the story because Ian wanted to get back with the Bunnymen, and this project would have ruined everything. Another theory is that the music was crap because Ian and Johnny were arguing so much that an album never really was completed. Whatever the case, that record seems to be gone forever. Let's go back to that Weezer record. After the big debut of the Blue Album, Rivers Cuomo wanted the second Weezer record to be a space opera. He called it Songs from the Black Hole. This was a concept record with all the songs flowing into each other without breaks. It's very ambitious. It's very Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Three dudes, two women, and a robot on a mission in space to rescue somebody. Rivers wanted the whole thing to be an analogy for a new band going on the road for the first time. But after working on it for the better part of a year in 1994 and 1995, it was abandoned. It collapsed under its own weight and never completed and never released. However, Songs from the Black Hole lives on. The project morphed into the Pinkerton album, which many fans now agree features some of Weezer's best work. Other songs have survived as part of a series of home recordings released by Rivers. If you have a copy of the Pinkerton album, you'll know a song called Tired of Sex. That's the only recording from the Songs from the Black Hole sessions that survived pretty much intact. When it was written, it was supposed to explain how Jonas, one of the characters on the spaceship, had issues of intimacy with Maria, one of the two women in the crew. Let's have a listen. Weezer and Tired of Sex. 
It's from the Pinkerton album now, but it was supposed to be on a record entitled Songs from the Black Hole, the great mythical Lost Weezer record. If you're interested in going deeper into that story, get Home Alone demo recordings released by Rivers Cuomo. They contain a number of black hole songs. More lost records in just a second, including whatever happened to what was supposed to be a big MTV Unplugged album from Oasis. In 1996, Oasis was one of the biggest bands in the world. The What's the Story Morning Glory album was selling by the millions, even in the U.S., which is a very tough market for a British rock band to crack in those days. Plans were made to have the band do an unplugged show for MTV, which, of course, was all the rage back then. Video would be shot and the audio would be turned into a live album. Unplugged records were doing very well back then. And this was seen as a way for a band like Oasis to really cement their presence in the minds of American rock fans. So in mid-August of 1996, Oasis started some heavy-duty rehearsals under super tight security at Royal Albert Hall in London. Things did not go well. Noel and Liam came to blows several times. And when the night of the taping arrived, which was August 23rd, 1996, Liam said, Nope, can't sing tonight. I have a sore throat. But rather than cancel, the show went on with Noel handling all the vocals. Liam, meanwhile, was seen up in a balcony, drinking beer and heckling Noel. MTV was furious, all this time and expense ruined by Liam's little drama play. And it got worse. Four days later, when the entire band was already on a British Airways flight bound for America, Liam suddenly bailed. He was in his seat. Ten minutes before takeoff, he said, No, take my bags off. I'm not going anywhere. The upshot of all this chaos is that the planned CD and DVD of the Royal Albert Hall performance was never released. It's the Lost Oasis Unplugged album. Well, mostly lost. Noel Gallagher singing for an unplugged oasis because, well, Liam couldn't be bothered that night. David Bowie never bothered to finish an album he started in 2000. After a series of tours, he decided that it might be fun to re-record some of the songs from the earliest days of his career. The tracks are pretty obscure. Only super Bowie files would have recognized them. Production was completed, artwork was finished, and Bowie even blogged about everything himself. He called the record Toy. But then things got complicated. Bowie was signed to Virgin Records at the time, and the rumor was they weren't interested in re-releasing an album that featured nothing but songs they didn't have the rights to. This contributed to a rift between the label and Bowie, and in late 2001, he left to set up his own label. And for whatever reason, Toy has never been released. Several songs appeared on a 2002 album entitled Heathen, and then there were a couple of B-sides, but the rest of the recordings are sitting in a vault somewhere. Toy is the lost Bowie album. Here's another one, this time from the Beastie Boys. If you have a copy of the Sounds of Science compilation, you'll know about track 12 on disc 1. It's entitled Country Mike's Theme. And if you read the liner notes, it's supposedly from a Beastie Boys album called Country Mike's Greatest Hits. Same thing for a track on disc 2 called Railroad Blues. What's going on here? Well, such a Beastie Boys album does exist. It dates back to 2000. It was a vinyl-only thing, but done as a joke for friends. It features 13 songs that were sent to family and friends with a Christmas card attached. It was never, ever meant for the general public. 
Of course, it's been highly bootlegged on both vinyl and CD since. And if you're a Beastie Boys fan, you probably really, really want one. Here's a quote about Adam Yock about why this album exists in the first place. At some point after Ill Communication came out, Mike got hit in the head by a large foreign object and lost all of his memory. As it started coming back, he believed that he was a country singer named Country Mike. The psychologist told us that if we didn't play along with Mike's fantasy, he could be in grave danger. Finally, he came back to his senses. This song, and in this particular case he's talking about Railroad Blues, is one of the many that we made during this tragic period of time. Okay, so here it is. Um, with apologies from the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys and Railroad Blues from their Lost Country album, yes, country album, called Country Mike's Greatest Hits. Speaking of lost records, Green Day misplaced an entire record. It just, uh, well, just vanished one day. And that turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to them. I will explain in a sec. These are the stories of great lost albums, records that were made but never released. Usually this means we're dealing with failures, but not in this case. Around 2000, Green Day was in trouble. The general consensus was that they had played out their string. They had nothing new to offer and people were tired of what they were selling. As sort of a last-ditch, what-the-hell effort, they went on tour as the opening act for Blink-182, who was really hot at the time. That tour went really, really well. A Greatest Hits album was released by their label, and it sold really, really well. So instead of being dropped by their label or breaking up, Green Day was encouraged to make another album. And they decided that, okay, we should maybe get back to the basics, start again. The songs were short and fast, much like what the band was doing before the Dookie album more than 10 years earlier. The sessions went well, and Green Day was pleased with how things were turning out. They were going to call this album Cigarettes and Valentines, and they were pumped about it. A track listing and some artwork were ready. But then one day, the band went back into the studio, and everything was gone. Were the master recordings stolen? Had someone erased them? Was it an accident? Was this theft? Was it sabotage? There were backup tapes, but they didn't sound as good. All the mixes were rough, and really the only way to salvage anything was to start again. How discouraging. But things worked out all right. Green Day went back to work, and the result was American Idiot. Ten million albums will certainly make you forget the one that got away. But Cigarettes and Valentines is not completely dead. We're going to play a brand new song. This turned up as part of the 21st Century Breakdown Tour. And ain't that brand new. This song's called Cigarettes and Valentines. Let's go! Green Day and Cigarettes and Valentines, a lost song from that album project that... Uh, well, allegedly disappeared sometime in 2003 under very mysterious circumstances. As a Nine Inch Nails fan, I waited for years for this side project called Tapeworm. It featured Trent Reznor, Danny Lohner, and Charlie Clouser from his live band, Maynard James Keenan from Tool, producer Alan Mulder, and Atticus Ross. I mean, wow, awesome, right? The idea for Tapeworm went as far back as the sessions for The Downward Spiral in 1994. Now, that was Trent's project. 
Tapeworm was designed as something to which Danny and Charlie could contribute as equals. This idea evolved into something pretty cool. Maynard was brought in, Phil Anselmo from Pantera, Paige Hamilton from Helmet, Tony Halliday from a cool band called Curve, Tommy Victor from Ministry, drummer Josh Fries. And then in 2001, Alan Mulder apparently helped record at least an album's worth of stuff. But nothing was ever released. In 2002, Charlie Clouser left Nine Inch Nails. He also severed connections to the Tapeworm Project. Meanwhile, Trent went into rehab, and when he recovered, he wanted to get back into Nine Inch Nails. Plus, Maynard had tool obligations and new ones for a perfect circle. In 2003, there were more recording sessions at both New Orleans and Atlanta. And then we were told that an album was ready to mix. But then reality set in. Nine Inch Nails' record label and Maynard's labels weren't keen on the idea. And by the middle of 2004, Trent declared that Tapeworm was, quote, dead for the foreseeable future. Now, there have been various leaks of songs purporting to be from Tapeworm, but that's very tough to verify. Two release tracks do have Tapeworm DNA, though. One is called Passive. It's on a Perfect Circle's 2004 album, Emotive. It's a descendant from a song called Vacant. Another is Potions, which appeared on a Pussifer album. Let's go with that APC song. It sounds like this. A Perfect Circle with a song called Passive. It's on their 2004 album Emotive, and its direct ancestor is a track entitled Vacant from the abandoned Tapeworm Project with Trent Reznor. All right, one more, and it also relates to Trent Reznor. When Zach De La Roca left Rage Against the Machine in the fall of 2000, it was almost a given that he would move on to some kind of solo work. He did, but then he kind of got lost. He worked with a series of DJ-slash-producers like DJ Shadow and Dan the Automator. He tried a collaboration with Trent, and that seemed to work well. Rumor is that up to 20 tracks were done, but nothing ever happened. But in 2005, when I was speaking to Trent about the Nine Inch Nails album, With Teeth, he dropped in a comment about working with Zach and Tapeworm. Listen. I was doing some other musical projects, none of which kind of panned out. I mean, the Tapeworm thing didn't turn out the way we'd hoped. Worked on Zach De La Roche's record, and that went well, but that's never going to see the light of day, I don't think. So what happened? Well, in interviews, Zach said he was just going through the motions and was uninspired by the whole experience. But it all worked out well, though. Rage got back together in 2007 and have been holding it together through a series of live gigs ever since. Zach also has a little project called One Day as a Lion that has received some attention. But I want to play you this. It's a track called We Want It All, which appeared on a compilation entitled Songs and Artists that Inspired Fahrenheit 9-11. That's the Michael Moore documentary. This song is apparently a survivor from the Trent Reznor sessions. Zach De La Roca and We Want It All. Could that be from the Lost album he did with Trent Reznor? Well, it sounds like something Trent and he might have had a hand in, doesn't it? So there's a brief history of Lost albums, records that, for various reasons, were abandoned, shelved, lost, or sabotaged. Let me leave you with one more. Korn has long wanted to record an album of covers, songs by their heroes, and they even had a name for it, Korn Covers. They started, but they gave up. And that project is dead. For now, anyway. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. 
You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.